Hey, this is Jeremy. Usually when software developers are talking career progression, it moves in the direction from being a software engineer to becoming an engineering manager. And today I'm talking to Lauren Tan, who moved in the opposite direction. She was an engineering manager at Netflix, and she recently made the decision to become a software engineer at Facebook. We discuss why she made that decision and the differences between being a software engineer, a technical lead, and an engineering manager. We also discuss what it means to be a senior software engineer and the ways that you can increase your impact and your influence in a software engineering role. I really enjoyed the conversation with Lauren and I hope you do as well. Hey Lauren, thanks for joining me today. Hi Jeremy, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So if we look back at 2015, you're moving from Australia to Boston. You're starting your first senior developer role at the Dockyard Consultancy. How did you get into this position where you decided that I'm going to leave this country I live in and I'm going to start this senior developer role in Boston? A long time ago, I never really planned to leave Australia, uh, let alone come to America. And, and I kind of traced this back to essentially how I got my career started in technology, where really what started as a hobby, creating like silly applications and in fact, one of my earliest introductions to programming was through Excel and like making elaborate spreadsheets and writing Visual Basic or VBA. It was kind of something that I never really planned to do. The long story short is after college, I started a startup called The Price Geek with one of my classmates. And at the time, I was getting really interested in essentially exploring more of this hobby that I had of programming and potentially exploring the idea of turning that into a career. So the year or two that I worked on that startup was um, really fun. We learned a lot about product development, about the business side of things, um, like, you know, how to manage your, your money and, think, and how to get funding and financing. That was all really interesting. And near the end of the, the startup, like when we were basically throwing in the towel, I realized that I enjoyed it so much. And despite the fact that my degree was in finance and not computer science, I enjoyed it so much that I, I thought to myself like, wow, it would be amazing if I could keep programming as a career. So I was very fortunate to get a first job in Australia as a software engineer. And I had started writing like a bunch of blog posts um, and started sharing them on Twitter and on Medium. And slowly but surely, I got people reading it. And there was a point where one of the creators of that JavaScript framework that I was writing about got in touch with me to say, hey, would you be interested in coming to speak at one of our conferences? And of course, I was totally taken aback because I had never, first of all, I had never, never even been to a, a tech conference at that point, let alone speak at one. So I had like totally no idea what I was doing, but I was convinced by them to apply. So I did and very grateful that they did that. And in doing all of this, essentially, I started to get the attention of some of the people working in America. Like, So the, the CEO of that consultancy dockyard reached out to me and asked if I would be interested in working there. And at the time, they were pretty well known in the field of building Ember applications, Ruby on Rails applications. And so I thought it would be pretty interesting to go and work there and learn from some of the people that I really looked up to in, in that community. And that was kind of the start of my career in Boston, essentially. And it really was a difficult decision to move, I think. Like, you know, like moving anywhere is difficult. But I think the move from Melbourne to Boston was exceptionally hard because it's a totally different country. It's so far away. My family and my friends would be like not even in the same time zone anymore in, in like opposite ends of the world, really. So that was particularly difficult. Um, and of course, like the Boston weather is terrible. <laughs> um, and part of the reason why I, I was like, I need to uh, maybe live somewhere else is because of the the uh, terrible Boston winter that mm. I experienced in 2015. Mm -hmm. That makes uh, a lot of sense <laughs> how you ended up in California. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was like, I need to go to somewhere warm. One of the other guests I'm going to have on, Swix, he mm -hmm. often talks about learning in public, which you were doing with your blog posts, which got you noticed. So I think that's good maybe advice for 
software developers in general that putting yourself out there and and sharing knowledge can really make these opportunities come to you? I think it can, but I I also want to say that I think that the developers that learn their craft during the time that I started as well, I think we were very fortunate in the sense that the web was a, a bit of a simpler place back then. And people, you know, would build applications just literally using HTML, CSS, and vanilla JavaScript. Back then, like you might just consider using jQuery or something like that, or right. Backbone or Moo Tools. Even a single-page application really wasn't the 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 norm, I suppose. I think today is a very different world because software development. I don't know if it's actually gotten more complex, but I think at least in the world of front-end development, it's gotten much more difficult to just get started. I'm not saying that you still can't build an app with just HTML, CSS, and vanilla JavaScript, but if you want to get a job doing it, then there's a, a bit of a higher bar, I think. So I will say, like, learning in public can be very helpful, but I also don't want to lie and disguise the fact that you know the environment has changed, like times have changed, and things are getting slightly more complicated and complex to build, and that just means that there's a bit of a higher hill to climb. If you are going to make a site, you have so many options. You have React, you have Vue, Ember, Svelte. There's there's all these different frameworks. And do I use JavaScript? Do I use TypeScript? Uh, it's definitely a lot more, I don't know how you describe it, intimidating, I guess. It shows the evolution, I think, of how front-end development has improved uh, in a way, it's like a, it's a mindset shift, I think, in the industry where previously, you know, like 10 years ago, it was still okay to just build what people might call like enriched documents, really, like documents sprinkled with some interactivity. But these days, you're often building like interactive applications that warrant a framework like React or Angular or Svelte or Vue. So I think maybe the problems that we're trying to solve have also changed that warrant, you know, more complex solutions. Because I don't think the answer is just say like, oh, we just need to get rid of all the complexity. The complexity exists for a reason. I think if I had advice for someone who was coming up in the industry, I would say don't get intimidated by all these different technologies. And honestly, it probably doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things which one you pick as long as you pick one and then you don't shut yourself off to learning from the others as well. Because frameworks will come and go, but the, the the knowledge that you will acquire from using these frameworks will hopefully stay with you for a long time. And so those are much more transferable than knowing every single detail about, you know, like the React API or something like that. Yeah, I think that's good advice. And I also wonder when you started, you had experience building applications in things like Rails. There are a number of frameworks where you can build a front end using primarily server-side code, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily build a single-page application. People starting out, is that still something they should look at, or do you think they should jump straight to single-page applications? I feel like it depends on your goal, and hopefully if you're learning to program, hopefully you also have a project or some kind of motivation for learning those technologies because I want to say that you should hopefully use the right tool for the job and if if in truth if you're building something that really doesn't require a lot of interactivity then maybe a single page application is overkill even though it might be beneficial for you to learn so I think it depends on your goal if if your goal is purely just for educational purposes then by all means choose the fanciest technology stack and you know learn away But if you're actually trying to get a project going off the ground, I feel like it's probably not that useful to kind of bike shed on, like, do we use Svelte or do we write our own thing or do we just use server-side rendered templates? I think those are all fun, you know, as technologists to kind of debate and think about. But they're just, in my, my opinion, obstacles for actually trying to do what you're trying to set out to do. So that's a bit of a roundabout way of saying that I think it depends on your goals. Like, is it to learn or is it to build something that you know you can get out the door really quickly? And depending on what goal you have, I think my suggestion would be slightly different. I think fortunately, if you're trying to, if if your goal is mainly just to learn, then any one of those uh, single page application frameworks are great to pick up. 
my only suggestion will be, again, like not to tie yourself too closely to just one framework, even though one may seem like the incumbent, the, you know, the one that every company is hiring for. And that's fine. Maybe you start there, but don't let that limit you from learning everything else. Because again, like there are a lot of concepts from the different frameworks that often make their way into other frameworks as well. That, that kind of reminds me of how when you first started, you were very focused on Ember and now you're deeply involved in React. You don't have to feel like you're tied to just the one you start with. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people on Twitter or in the, in the tech community say this. There, there are a lot of these people who say like, oh, you know, don't bother learning a framework, just learn the fundamentals. In spirit, I agree with that principle. I think that you, know, you should learn the fundamentals. But I also agree that actually learning a framework first is not a bad thing. In fact, it helps you. Sometimes you don't need to peel away all the layers of abstraction straight away because that can be very overwhelming. And I think single page applications, there are a lot of tutorials online that you can follow and you can get something working. And that is your basis for starting to then peek under the hood to say, oh, how actually does that work? Like, why did I use a component here instead of, you know, make a component that does this other thing? I think I think of it more like the onion of knowledge, really. I don't know what a good analogy is, but like an onion in the sense that there are layers that you kind of peel away and you, mm-hmm. you slowly understand what the frameworks and the languages are doing. And in fact, I see even today, like my career and the stuff that I'm doing is continually peeling the layers. Like maybe today I, I may not be working on like writing an application anymore. I might be working on the infrastructure that powers the tools that allow this application to be made. But I wouldn't have been able to have gotten here if I had not been building applications before. So you kind of go deeper and deeper, but you can't go deeper without a strong foundation. So my advice is, you know, start with what's comfortable, start with something that's easy to learn and use that as a foundation for going deeper into the technologies and the areas of programming that you're interested in. Because maybe you'll find that, you know, front-end development is not for you. And maybe you'll realize that, you know, actually I prefer back-end development. And that's perfectly fine. There's no like one path in this industry, which is pretty cool. So I would say, you know, keep it broad, learn as much as you can, and then follow follow what, what interests you and, and what excites you. A lot of people, when they're learning, it's hard to stay motivated unless you're actually building something that you can see. I think in that respect, if using a framework like React or Phoenix or Rails, if it's going to get you to the point of being able to see something working that will keep you motivated, keep you moving, then it, it makes a lot of sense to to start there. Yeah, I totally agree. There are a lot of great concepts in these frameworks that will apply in other areas as well. Like whether you, again, like whether you use this framework or that framework or no framework, there are, are still a lot of programming patterns that you can learn. Just why if I were to start learning how to code again, I would still start from the same place. I would still pick a framework and go with that mm-hmm. and then figure out how it works. I want to take us back to your time at Dockyard. I believe your title was Senior Developer. What do you think made you a senior developer? Or did you feel like one at the time? I I think that's a great question. I think my general uh, viewpoint on this is that I don't think we have agreed upon standards for what we de- deem senior. And I don't want to be like the gatekeeper of what determines you know someone as a senior engineer. But I certainly didn't feel like a senior developer, at least in my definition of what I thought a senior developer should be at the time. And at the time, I think I had a fairly naive impression of what a senior developer was. And my thought was all about, you know, the senior developer is essentially the person who is the best programmer, who knows every single API by heart, is a genius at all the internals of every library that they use. And they're just like technical, technical, technical chops. But interestingly, the more I worked there and the more I you know, interacted with other people who had the same title, the more I realized that my viewpoint of what makes somebody a senior developer or engineer was totally off. And today I feel like you know, the technical chops are just a, a small part of the, the skill set and the tool set of a senior engineer. And if that's the only thing that you're bringing to the table, then 
it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think you're you're doing yourself a disservice by not flexing those other muscles, which is a huge lesson I learned when I took on the the role of a manager. But yeah, like I definitely didn't feel like I was a senior developer back then. Maybe today I feel more like a senior developer, but you know, I think everyone has this different definition. But at least in my definition, I think I, I feel pretty confident in saying that yes, I do. I am actually a senior developer. So what would you say were the key differences then? Because you were saying that it's beyond just the technical aspect, but what are those those pieces that you think make you feel comfortable saying that you're senior now? First of all, it was the mindset shift for myself that I, I can't pinpoint a specific point in time where it happened, but I, I've certainly recognized it today where I essentially no longer feel the need to rush into writing code. Whereas in the past, you know, the moment you get a project, you're like, all right, I need to, I need to write this uh, proof of concept. I need to like do this, do this, do this. And you kind of, just, you, just, you just focus on writing code. And that's all, like for you, your impact is all about the, the raw output of your keyboard, essentially. And that was the wrong mindset to have because what I learned over the years and working on different projects and in different companies is that, you know, oftentimes the most impactful things were not actually the result of code. It could be a conversation that you have with your customer or your client to find out like, the the assumption that you had made was incorrect, and you know it's like it, it, it's something you can ask in a question and you can get an answer to in like thirty minutes, or you could spend days and weeks building something and then you bring it back and showing it to them, and then they they tell you like this is not what I wanted, and so. I learned that lesson very painfully because I was one of those people who would just rush into writing code and then my my viewpoint was if I don't have to talk to anyone then I'm succeeding. But that was totally incorrect and uh, it was a it was a tough lesson to go through but I think a lesson that I sorely needed. So it it's definitely affected the way I operate today. I think today I don't shy away from talking to people. In fact, I will go out of my way sometimes to to have conversations with people even when it's going to disrupt you know the time that I, I enjoy of just writing code because i know how impactful you know conversations like that can be if especially when you're trying to you know do things that are maybe not very certain or get more context or even prioritize things i think another aspect of being a senior developer is knowing when to say yes to things and saying when to say no to things and i don't know know if there's necessarily a framework or I don't think there's a decision tree for when to say no or yes. I think it, it's very much based on intuition and your understanding of the context and the problems you're trying to solve. And also like, you know, organizational challenges that may happen. But prioritization is something I feel like we don't often talk about because again, if your mindset's all about my impact is based on the pure output of my coding, then you're not going to be in a position where you can say, hold on, before I go and just jump straight into writing some code, let me actually speak with my manager and kind of challenge the idea of like, wait, hold on, is this actually the best way to do it? Do we even need to write any code to solve this problem? Maybe it's an organizational problem. If I were to distill it down, it's I think there, it's the realization that my output is not just code anymore. And I think that for me was the, the point where I, I could say to myself like, I am a senior engineer, even though maybe I'll join a company and not immediately be an expert in all of the proprietary tools that they have, which is expected. Like, how can you, you know, how can anyone be an expert when you haven't used those technologies? And there's there's certainly no expectation, I think, that any company you join, you'll be immediately the foremost expert on something that they, they do in within the company. So the thing that you kind of bring from position to position or project to project is really those core skills of like, you know, your understanding of like fundamental programming things that are transferable, but also the organizational chops that are also equally, if not more important than those foundational skills. Earlier in your career, like at Dockyard, did you feel like you had the authority to ask those questions, like to challenge your manager or go directly to the customer? Was there anything that was stopping you from doing that then? I think there were a number of challenges. I think for sure the agency relationship with customers makes it a little bit difficult because as an agency or a software consulting company, you're not 
always in a position to kind of question or challenge the client because at the end of the day, the client's paying you to build something very specific and ensure maybe you can point out, you know, maybe the flaws in their plan or deficiencies, but ultimately the contract that you sign states that you have to deliver a certain product by the end of a certain timeline. That was probably the systemic challenge there. But I think I also didn't feel empowered to kind of do that anyway, even if that wasn't the case. I think there were a number of challenges, but certainly I was maybe not having the right examples either. To like, if you know, for example, maybe some of the more senior people in the company were doing that, and uh, you know, setting a good example, then I think others would have followed as well. But I don't really feel like that we were in necessarily in a position to do so. So I think that made it more complex. And I think once I started joining uh, a company like Netflix or Facebook, where I currently work, I think that dynamic and the the expectations also changed. Because now we were in a I'm in a position where my job is again not just to blindly output code uh, just because someone said so, but to kind of be a problem solver. And so I think it's it's a very it's a very different relationship and I think if you are in a software consulting role or soft or agency role then a lot of what I'm saying may not necessarily apply because you you know you're not always in a position to go and question your client or customer maybe you might find a customer that is you know awesome enough to let you do that and you know and be receptive of the feedback as well but that's not often the case especially on projects where it's like super tight deadline just deliver something in two two three months so Context is everything. Yeah, that's an interesting point about how when you're working in an agency, you're ultimately telling the customer, I will do this thing for you. It's written down in a contract. Whereas for a more traditional company, it's really dependent on the culture of that company. And maybe that's something that when you're interviewing or learning more about that company, you would want to figure out how much agency or, or how much control will you have as an engineer being in that company? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it's a question I will often ask when I've done interviews uh, as an interviewee in the past is, you know, ask people, especially the engineers on the team that are interviewing me for examples of, you know, times where they were empowered to say no to certain things. And I think the the way that they answer those questions will tell you a lot about the culture of the company. I often find, like, and as a meta point, I think asking for examples in interview questions to your interviewers are actually always, for me, very helpful in trying to reverse engineer what the, in, the, the culture is really like versus what it's advertised. Because sometimes, and, and it's not ideal, but there's often a disconnect between what is stated and what is really happened. And I think there's no better way to learn that than to ask for examples. Mm. What are some questions you would ask to sort of reverse engineer that? Oh, I have I have so many. I think like the, the things that come to mind are like, I just mentioned, like, can you tell me, can you share an example of a time where you were empowered to say no? Or tell me about a time where you disagreed with a manager and you were given the autonomy or freedom to go and explore that solution that you, you know, that you were proposing. The things along those lines where it gives the interviewer a chance to kind of show that the, the culture is truly what they say they claim it is. If if I think of more later, I'll I'll bring them up as well, or I can I can share some thoughts in writing later as well. Cool. You know, when you ask those kinds of questions, reading people's body language or just the way they respond, you can maybe infer a lot <laughs> a lot of information beyond what's being said. Yeah. Yeah, especially in the times where maybe that person is unable to give you an example, and instead mm-hmm. they'll talk about it more generally. Which for me is a bit of a smell because you know it, it means that maybe they don't practice what they preach, and um, I, I think what you just said is 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 very important. I think the way that the person answers that question tells you a lot, even if they don't come out right and say like, "No, I am not empowered to say no." <laughs> um, yeah, I think it just tells you a lot, like just how the person answers, what they say, what they don't say, um, is also important. But I mean, I also say that with the with the somewhat small caveat that 
I mean, there may be a chance that maybe that, that person just hasn't had that occur to them. You know, like right. maybe not that they have not been empowered to say no. They just have never had said no. And it's not necessarily a, a bad mark, uh, I would say. So a lot of judgment applies to how you interpret those answers. But again, like they can be so subjective. So mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a clear cut way to say like, oh, this company is definitively bad or, or good. And then I think to make things more challenging, depending on the, the size of the company you're going into, a lot of the culture will really depend on the immediate team that you're on. And in fact, probably the manager that you have is a bigger indicator of the culture, I think, than the general company-wide culture. So it really depends. But if, if you have the hiring manager in your interview panel and you're given time to ask questions, then I would definitely bring lots of really hard questions and <laughs> really get a sense of you know whether this manager will be the right person to support you in your career. And uh, sort of going off on a tangent here, but I think my own experience being a manager has also kind of taught me that there are lots of different kinds of managers and it's not like one is better than the other. I think there is some kind of matching that you have to do on your own as you understand what kind of support you need. For example, if you're still early in your career, maybe you do need a manager who is very technical, who can give you a lot of you know, technical feedback that can help you grow in your career, at least technically. But maybe once you get more senior uh, in your career, maybe that kind of manager would no longer be as beneficial to your career as for someone who is earlier in their career. And instead, maybe you might look for someone who is more of a sponsor, you know, like someone who goes out and finds really difficult problems and says, hey, can you solve this? And maybe that's what you need in your career. So I think spending the time to introspect and think about, you know, if I had the perfect manager, like what would they be like? And then we kind of go backwards from there and say, like, what questions do I need to ask in order to determine if this if this manager would be that person? And obviously, it's not a perfect. You, you can never really know for sure until you've started working with them. Uh, but it can at least give you more confidence if you're, you know, interviewing in lots of different places and you're trying to trying to, you know, make a decision on like where you ultimately land. Yeah, that's an interesting point about finding a manager fit. And after Dockyard, you moved to Netflix as a senior software engineering lead. And in that role, what were you looking for in a manager? So I joined Netflix not as a as a lead per se. Like mm. it wasn't an official title, but more so unofficial title, if you will, after a period of time. I, I guess like LinkedIn probably doesn't capture that very accurately. So I think in terms of what I was looking for in my manager at that point when I had just joined the company, I did think I was at the point when I joined Netflix that I really wasn't necessarily looking so much for, you know, just like raw technical chops. Like I wasn't looking for a manager who was a better coder than me. I think the thing that I was excited about was Netflix's culture of freedom and responsibility and context not control. And all those things that they write on their culture memo, and I can actually safely say that pretty much most of it, if not all of it, is true and they do apply in practice. So I was very excited about going into a company where the culture was so different than anything I had ever experienced. And I wanted to learn what I had started to think about would define me as being at the level that I wanted to be, you know, like not someone who is only good at programming, but also someone who brings a lot of impact to the team that they work on, whether it's a contribution in the form of code or a contribution in the form of an architecture document or even a comment or some feedback that you've given someone. Because when I first joined, I I didn't feel like I was in that position yet. But a year or so, a year or about a year and a half, I don't remember exactly, I did start to feel like I was getting the hang of the culture and also the technology at at Netflix, where I was then very comfortable when my manager came to me and said, hey, would you like to be the lead for the team to say yes? I was like, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I already felt like I was operating like a lead. So this was more like a just a recognition that I was already operating at that capacity. So I think that my manager at the time was definitely very supportive and, you know, they looked out for opportunities for me. 
and they were never really prescriptive about certain things. Like they may have diff- they may have had different opinions from me from time to time, but they weren't afraid to say, you know what, go try what you think is right, and then let's compare notes and see what what turns out to be better. And that was always very encouraging because, you know, it it creates this almost psychological safety of uh, you know going and trying different things that people don't necessarily immediately agree with. Like if you can prove that something is better with a prototype or a document or whatever it might be, that you're given the autonomy and flexibility and the space to go and explore that and then come back and say, you know what, this was either a good a good idea or a bad idea or unconclusive. But I think that was for me something that I, I really enjoyed about that part of my career. And so it sounds like your manager gave you the opportunity to explore having more influence, having more control over the types of work you were doing and how you were doing it. And at that time in your career, that's that's really what you were looking for. Yeah, I think, I don't recall when, but there's, there has definitely been times where I've had what I would call the programmer's midlife crisis, if you will. <laughs> um, <laughs> where you start questioning like what you're doing and the way that you've been doing things and you know the purpose and starting to look up from the keyboard and like hold on a minute you know like I can get this project done but is this really the right thing to be doing and I think the more senior you get the, the more that urge will come to you and you'll start thinking more about hmm the moments where you say to yourself like hold on a minute like something feels off and I think the turning point for a lot of people will be when you start turning those thoughts into action. And instead of just saying, hold on a minute in your mind and then just continuing anyway, you start actually going forward and talking to people and say, hold on, here's something that you know doesn't sit quite well with me. Let's talk about it. And in fact, I think one of the things I, I started to recognize once I was operating in that lead capacity, even though maybe I didn't have the title just yet, was that actually I was spending less time coding. And initially it felt kind of awkward. I was like, why am I in all these meetings? (laughs) Um, And, you know, like, why am I, like, I feel like my output has dropped a lot. And it was true. Like if if the only output that you're measuring is my code, then it definitely dropped quite a lot. But I think in terms of the impact I was having or, you know, that I I was uh, having on the team and the projects that I was on, I think definitely outweighed that because it wasn't a net loss because... Oftentimes when you have like someone who's operating at the lead capacity, it means that in a way they're giving away those problems that are maybe more dif- are difficult to solve and allowing others to kind of learn about them and you know not hogging all the difficult pieces to themselves, which sometimes lead tech leads might do. And instead giving opportunities to others to grow, which is also a kind of actually a responsibility for a tech lead. So I think going back to, you know, like what, the you know your question of what did I need from my manager at the time? I think it was definitely being put more so than a lot of other things. It was being put in an environment where I could really flex those non-technical skills and understand and almost in a way create the environment. You know, like if if like a manager is like a gardener, then creating the the right conditions in the environment so that I could not just thrive but also evolve and grow and broaden my 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 branches <laughs> it's a weird analogy and uh, we've kind of stepped around it but I think the the title of someone being a lead to a lot of people is a little fuzzy some people think a lead is the same thing as a manager and it sounds like what you're saying is in your case a lead was someone who is able to, ask questions to figure out what should actually be being built. They're able to decide who should work on these things after you've decided what needs to get built. And we haven't mentioned this, but potentially help the people who are building these things if they get stuck. Would you say those are kind of the three primary things that a lead does? Um, at a high level, I think that's I think that's pretty accurate. I would also say... To be, to be a bit more granular, I would say it also depends on the kind of tech lead that you want to be or, or maybe another way to put this might be the tech lead that your team needs because the truth is, at least from my perspective, there are, just like managers have different archetypes, I would also say that tech leads have different archetypes. 
And it really just depends on the kind of project that you're working on. I would say, though, as a minimum for me, at least from the technical side of things, like, yes, even though I wasn't writing a lot of code anymore as a lead, I was still reviewing a lot of code. In fact, I think I would probably say I reviewed more than I wrote code. So I think that was also part of the the dawning realization that, hey, you know, you can contribute in, in forms that aren't just you writing the code. And then slowly kind of universe expanding of like, oh, if I step back just a little bit, I start to see the forest of, mm-hmm. of what impact as an engineer is. And it was the realization that I had been, you know, only just focusing on this technical tree and, and not growing all these other skills that are also really important. So I think tech leads are, you know, like usually if if not always are typically the people who are seen as the best engineer who get who gets pushed into the, the kind of lead position. But I would say that Tech leads are interesting in the sense that you're not a manager. Obviously, you're you don't have you typically don't have reports and you don't have any authority, so to speak, over anyone. So, all you really have as a tech lead, I feel, is the influence that you've earned throughout your career in that company, and that kind of social capital, if you will, that people will start to listen to you because you've been around. You know, you know your way around, and you, you've proven that you can you know, handle large projects and things like that and, and grow other engineers. So I think for me, it was the, like being a tech lead in, in some ways can be actually more challenging in some ways as a manager because it's sort of blurring the lines. Like as I think as a tech lead, you're kind of like in this awkward gray zone between engineer and manager and you're not quite one. You're not you're not quite a manager. You're, you're obviously still an engineer, but you're in a position of greater influence and greater and not really authority but more respect typically is given to you and so you're in this awkward position I think where it again it it comes down to what your team needs and maybe like for example if I was to join a new team and I was the tech lead for that team and I if it was a team of one or two people then obviously the 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 expectations and the way I would do my job would be very different from me joining as a tech lead on a team of like a team of 12 engineers like it's a very different set of you know variables that you know you kind of have to to learn how to tweak and again just depends on the makeup of the team as well so you know like if i join a team of 12 very junior engineers then also my approach would be very different versus if i join a team of 12 extremely senior engineers then it, it all is all very fuzzy so there's no i don't think there's one there's no one way to to do your job as a tech lead or as an engineer as a manager and maybe it sounds like a bit of a cop-out answer but i do think that a lot of a lot of questions i think can be kind of distilled down to the the age-old answer it depends Obviously, just saying it, it depends and nothing else is a bit of a cop-out. But I can say that you know there are different circumstances and some may require, as a tech lead, more, more involvement from you at the architecture level, maybe some less, or maybe some where you, instead of worrying too much about architecture, maybe the problems are more around organizational challenges or headcount uh, constraints. I would imagine like things like that are, you know, the like tech leads should be doing as well. Like for example, you know, like that example I shared with you of joining a team and being like one of two engineers. Maybe one of the first things my job would be is to actually point out to, you know, like leadership that, hey, I've just joined this project and it's clearly very ambitious, but there's only two of us and we, and the deadline that the timeline that we're going to work on is way too unrealistic. So I actually need to campaign my manager to say, this is why we need another two engineers or one engineer on this project. And so that's why I think it's a bit tricky because uh, it really depends on the team that you're on. That's a really good point in terms of the, the size and the experience and the actual project that you're tackling. I think that's why people have so much trouble understanding what it is a tech lead does because from mm-hmm. what you're describing it's a completely different job from person to person. Yep, yeah, it's very it's very context dependent because you're you're kind of straddling the line between manager and engineer and individual contributor. And so you kind of have to sometimes wear the manager hat even though you're not a manager and sometimes you have to wear the engineer hat. 
But I think like knowing when to switch hats is is really important. And if if the expectation that maybe someone else has set for you is that you are wearing the technical hat most of the time, then then that's the expectations that you work towards. But I think for most companies, especially the bigger ones, I think there is an expectation that you also wear the project management hat, you know, the organizational hat where you go and raise problems like that as well. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about tech leads and managers and how the role of a tech lead is, is so fuzzy. After your role as a lead at Netflix, you moved on to becoming a manager. And what would you say are the key differences between being a manager and a tech lead? How did your your job change? How did your role change? So I, I do want to make the distinction that even though I, I said earlier that, you know, as a tech lead, you're sort of in between a manager and an individual contributor. I do want to say like there are a lot of manager specific things that tech leads don't get exposed to. It's definitely it was definitely a big jump even going from tech lead to manager, let alone like as a non-tech lead engineer to manager. And I think a lot of those challenges were in the forms of essentially problems which I never really thought about. Like maybe I would have said we need more people on this project, but I wouldn't have then gone on to say, all right, I now need to spend the next three months looking for the perfect hire to join the team. Because that was the job of the manager is to really think about the people and the conditions of the overall team that they're supporting. Whereas as a tech lead, your your sphere is slightly more constrained to maybe a project or two, purely more in terms of the the results of said project. Whereas I think as a as a manager, the expectations become more at the organizational level and your success is really determined by the work that your team ultimately does or doesn't do. Maybe maybe it sounds kind of subtle like when I describe it, describe it that way, but I, I will say that it was definitely a very different job like when I went on to become a manager. The first of which is, I think, a very false conclusion that I may have harbored a long time ago, which was, and I think a lot of people share the same sentiment as well, which I want to come, I go on record and say, like, I kind of disagree with that. And that view is essentially that becoming a manager is a promotion. And I think in some ways, maybe it is a promotion, like maybe financially you might get paid more and you might have more opportunities to have certain kinds of impact depending on the company that you're in but I'll say for the most part like having that mindset that management is a promotion is not the right one to have because I think it disguises the fact that like when you go from engineer to manager you're basically going from very senior engineer who knows who is very good at their job to going to becoming a baby manager who knows nothing <laughs> about their job. So it is very different. They're like two completely distinct tracks. And all the skills that you've used, like 99% of them you've used to be successful as an engineer are probably not going to translate that well to being a manager. Like you're not going to be expected to write as much code or you know to even do code reviews. Instead, your your role is really more to ensure that you have the right people on your team and also the right environment where those people can thrive and do their their best work and achieve the goals that you know that have been set up for your team and even shape those goals that that your team should be working on so it was definitely a very different career change and i think even though i had expectations going in that it'd be very different it was a totally different experience doing it if that makes sense like I was expecting one thing, like I knew it would be different, but I didn't realize it would be that different. And I remember, you know, like as a manager, I would spend so many hours just looking through LinkedIn or reaching out to people on Twitter and asking them like, hey, would you want to come work on my team? Because as a manager, that's like your biggest lever for impact is getting to pick who is in the team. And it may sound like a very, it may sound simple, right? Like, you know, you're just hiring but I would say it's actually a very, very, very high leverage activity. Like if you find that person who fills out a, a gap in your team where you know maybe there's a certain skill set or a certain technology, technology skill or organizational skill that your team doesn't have that you want to have, and you're able to fill that position and 
not just do that, but keep them there as well for, for, or not keep them there, but to create an environment where that person is happy it's for staying for a while, then you've really done a great job because you know now you've, you have a strong, solid dream team that has the capabilities of doing awesome work that you need that you want to achieve the vision that you have for your team. And then you also have to balance that with the, the often difficult work of what is often called like talent retention, but I don't really like that term because it's not about... I don't think so much about retaining people is more so because that sounds to me like they're constantly trying to, to escape and then you're just trying to hold them back. I think it's more about creating an environment where people are attracted to and they want to stay, not because of, you know, they're handcuffed, but because they choose to stay because, you know, you're a great manager and the team is good, the work is impactful. If, if anyone listening is also going through that transition or you've just become a manager, I'll say that. I think for me, at least, the, the 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 biggest challenge I had to overcome in the initial couple of months of of making this transition was really understanding that it was a completely different job, and then changing all the things that I did for that new reality, and not trying to go back to the things and the skills and activities that I had been relying on as a tech lead. You gave a few examples of what a manager does that wouldn't go to a tech lead, like like hiring. And if your team needs more resources, making that pitch to get more money and also creating an environment where people want to stay there. Mm-hmm. Are there any other specific examples for the types of things that would only be a manager's role versus something that a tech lead would do? Yeah, so it's not going to be an exhaustive list for sure, but... sure. I can at least point out the things that are not immediately obvious, not unless someone explicitly says it. But I will say actually, depending on the company, I think one of the, the biggest jobs of a manager is actually like the, the flip side of hiring, which is firing. And that's mm. a really tough one. Like, you know, mm. you you never go into a team or hire someone or, you know, work with someone on your team expecting that you'll need to one day like fire them. But as a manager, that is the the thing that that you think about on a constant basis, not because you're just like firing people just to fire people. Or uh, again, I don't know. Maybe the different. Maybe at, at at certain companies where they do things like stack ranking, and you know, there's an expectation that yeah, I don't know. I've I've been fortunate not having worked in companies like that. But if you are a manager, I would say that you know you're often the person who does a lot of like unglamorous things like that to me, at least it seems unglamorous to me, mm-hmm. You're like of, of the hard work of, you know, recruiting and hiring and speaking to candidates and selling them on your team. And if you do write code, you it's most likely going to be the very boring parts of the code base, like adding tests or writing a little script that does a certain thing. So you're not going to be working on those things that you thought were exciting or the things that may have even attracted you to, to software engineering in the first place. So a very different job and there's going to be so many other things that you may not be aware that managers have to do. Like, I don't really like how people will phrase this, but a, a lot of managers will say like they provide air cover or they like they shield your, their team from shit. Um, and I think there's some truth to that, like in, in, ter- like in the spirit of what that means. But I think there are obviously different ways of approaching it. And personally for me, I would rather, rather instead of of thinking it like that, like I'm shielding my team from shit, I think it's more about maybe there is shit coming towards our way, but my job as a manager is to also not make that shit before it comes mm, to my team, if that yeah. even makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so that often means talking to people in different positions, different parts of the company, people who are hire, you know, like a VP or a director and convincing them that, you yeah. know, this path isn't the right one. And the truth is that a lot of individual contributors won't see that, not because they're on a, they are like ignorant, but because it's like, if your manager is doing a, a good job of that, you just don't see it. And sometimes managers can be a bit flippant, I think, and to say that, oh yeah, we're just like, you know, like I shield all the shit so you don't have to, which I think is again like in spirit it it, it captures the the outcome of what of what that is, but I think it also doesn't quite accurately portray how the manager goes about doing it, because there are many different ways. Like yes, maybe you can just shield and keep your team unaware of everything, but that's not necessarily a great way to run your team as well, because 
your reports will not necessarily trust you very much if you're always being very dishonest and like not telling them the truth mm-hmm. uh, because of your you know desire to shield them from shit. Right. And said maybe the the better approach is to let people know that you know there are rocky things that are coming. Like there there are things that the company that we work at doesn't do so well, and that's okay. We'll figure it out. But not to completely hide it. I think. I think that's mm-hmm. the the part which I'm not a big fan of. It's like it's it's a bit of a cop out to me if the manager just keeps things from their team because of that mindset or because of that belief that by doing so they're helping their team. When in fact, I think it's actually making the team worse off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective because ultimately, if you are shielding your team and the things that they're being shielded from or just shifting elsewhere in the organization uh, that's not really solving the root problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think it can also be very powerful for managers to point out areas which need help. Mm-hmm. And then instead of feeling like the manager has to solve all of those problems, I think we, we talk a lot about the management parts of the job, but not the leadership parts of the job. Leadership is really more about, you know, influence and the way you conduct yourself and how others perceive your your behavior versus management, which is more like, I think, a, like a role that you play. Like So things like hiring and firing are obviously the role of, of a manager, but getting people excited about a vision and getting people to, to do certain things, even though you're not explicitly like bending their arm to do it, is a part of, of the job that is not often talked about or even taught. Like, how do you do that? It's not something that you can, I think, just read a book and, and mm-hmm. do. Like, it's it's something that I think over time and trial and error and, I don't know, maybe some intuition, you kind of build that up over time. A realization that I had over the past two and a half years when I was uh, a manager that that leadership is not solely within the domain of the manager. Like it, it sounds silly to say this, like like that I had to be a manager to realize this. But it wasn't as evident to me until I became a manager that, hey, hold on, there's a lot of things that I'm doing as a manager that I didn't have to be a manager to do these. Like mm. so when I started to to think about the different parts of the job that I was doing, I started to realize like, hold on, there's a there are the parts that I like, right? A lot of the leadership side of things I really enjoyed. And then the other parts, which I maybe didn't enjoy as much. And I realized like, oh, hold on, actually, I don't necessarily have to be a manager to practice these skills. That was actually the realization that I needed to maybe go back to be an engineer again. But I certainly don't regret the time I spent as a manager because I was exposed to so many different kinds of problems that I never, ever had to face as an engineer you know, like hiring, having to let people go, dealing with the the sometimes unreasonable demands of different organizations that we were working with and balancing that all. And another thing that maybe managers don't talk about is oftentimes people will come to you with problems that you can't solve. And these are maybe personal problems, emotional problems. And if, if you're a very empathetic person, then I think the job of a manager gets really difficult because, you know, people come to you with lots of problems that you can't solve. And if you're an engineer, you probably want to try and solve all the problems. And it's it can be very frustrating. So I guess I'll sum it all by saying that being a manager is a totally different job from being an engineer, even a tech lead. It, it's totally different. It's not a promotion. I don't consider it a promotion. And I think if anybody chooses to do it, I think you'll learn a lot. And hopefully you'll enjoy that transition as well. But personally for me, I didn't enjoy it. That that doesn't make being a manager bad. It just means that it wasn't for me. And now that you're at Facebook as a software engineer again, what's the thing that you enjoy most about being a software engineer as opposed to being a manager? I think... When it came down to it, it was really a reflection of the why was I'm in the tech industry in the first place. And I think the simple way to put it is that I mentioned earlier at the start of this conversation that you know programming started out as a hobby for me. And it was something that I would spend all my 
free time just working on. I would spend like, I would have these like shower thoughts essentially of programming. And I've realized like I've been so fortunate that I was able to turn something that was purely a hobby into a full-time career. And when I was reflecting at the end of 2019 about, you know, the next couple of years of my career, I did really start to think that, you know, there was a lot of programming and being an engineer that I really missed. And also me realizing that other part, which I mentioned earlier, which is that, you know, there's a lot of things I was doing as a manager that there were not things that only managers could do, but you may have to become a manager to learn the skills, which sounds kind of weird. But I think it was that, that realization that like, hey, one, I can go back to do what I love, which is programming. And two, I can also bring back all these lessons that I've learned as a manager and basically supercharge myself as an engineer and be so much more impactful. Not because I'm going to write all the code and solve all the problems, but because I know how to inspire, I know how to influence, I know how to communicate, I know how to get things done and get other people to, to like help out with those problems. And I think that was for me the realization that I could sort of have my cake and eat it too, I guess. And I think that I'm very fortunate in that I think at Facebook, they think very heavily about career paths for, you know, as an engineer, as a manager. And I think the company does a, a pretty good job at stating that, you know, one is not superior to the other. In fact, like there's more or less an identical leveling track for engineers and managers and also very similar in terms of compensation. So there's no like penalty for you if you become an engineer. It's not like you're going back. It's seen more as like you are just hopping over to the other parallel track. Mm-hmm. And one of the blog posts that I want to kind of call out here that really helped me think about my career this way is a blog post by Charity Majors called The Engineer Slash Manager Pendulum. And she does an amazing job of articulating this hidden career path, if you will, of jumping between the engineering track and the management track every couple of years. And she does a way better job than I think I can to explain like why it's an interesting career path to take. But it certainly inspired me to start thinking more critically about what I wanted out of my job. And then finally mustering the the courage to go and interview again because I don't actually know anyone that I can think of who actually enjoys interviewing. I don't. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of those <laughs> evils that we kind of put up with. So there is some courage you have to muster up often just to interview and, and go look elsewhere. But I think her blog post really spurred me to to take action on it. Mm. Yeah, the the interviewing problem is that sounds like the maybe <laughs> the job for a job for a manager. <laughs> Yes, I think, yes, it, it is part of the manager's job. But I think as engineers, we can also do a lot to at least point out the problems. Maybe we're mm-hmm. not the ones to fix them, but we can at least say, like, hey, you know, this interview panel that I'm on, like, I've looked at the other interviewers on the team, on the on this panel, and, mm-hmm. you know, you can call out things that aren't quite right, that don't sit right to you. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe the, the panel is very undiverse, or maybe the the interview goes on for, like, eight whole hours, you know, like, there are things like mm-hmm. that that you can mm-hmm. still do to influence that process. Mm-hmm. And even influence the questions that get asked. Like, I think, I haven't been a part of an interview panel here yet, but if I understand it correctly, I think the en- engineers have a lot of influence over the kinds of questions that are set as standard for the different interviews that we have. And so that's one way as well to have a lot of impact and influence over the interview process and make sure that the questions that we're asking are relevant, realistic, but also you know ensures that we keep that standard of engineering quality that we want which is always a fine balance to strike. And I think I could probably talk to you for like another whole two hours just on the topic of interviewing. So I won't go into that right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely something <laughs> that everybody has an opinion and everybody agrees it needs to be better. But for some reason, we as an industry just haven't gotten there yet. I think my short answer to this is that I don't think there is a perfect solution, which is why we haven't, as an industry, adopted something that's better. It's a it's a process that is very lossy, and there's just no way to really tell in a short frame of time like what a person will be like working on a job. 
And there are many ways to solve it, none of which I think is better than another. So that's all I'll say about that topic. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get me started. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that anybody listening to this, maybe the big takeaway would be, regardless of what your role is, even if you are uh, just a regular software engineer, look for what are the places where you can ask questions, whether that's of what type of work you're doing, whether the technology you're using is right, or do you have the right people to do it? Like, what are ways that you can really improve your team situation without necessarily having to change titles? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. The The way I, w- I would try to summarize like my learnings over the years is really that it comes down to like ultimately for me, it all, it all stems from this root. And I think the root of this is all that realizing that your job is not to write code, right? Code is merely a side effect of your job. I think your job is really to solve problems. And there are many ways to solve problems. And I think realizing that is, to me, step zero in terms of growing more senior in your career. And the other thing I'll say to that is also as you get more senior, things will get more ambiguous and you'll have to learn how to, to, to deal with that uncertainty and ambiguity and accepting that sometimes there isn't an answer and that's okay. Uh, I think those are some of the, the two big lessons that I've learned. That's interesting because I think as engineers, a lot of people feel like as they learn more, things will get less ambiguous, but it sounds like as you progress in your career, things are actually getting more ambiguous and that's how you know you're progressing. Exactly, yeah. I think even <laughs> even in the code I write, because like, yeah, I think you can you can see it sometimes like, uh, and I, I've seen this in myself as well, where, you know, like when you're not quite, a, you're not a junior engineer anymore, and but you're not really senior and, you know, you kind of know enough to be dangerous and you start dreaming up these uh, I, I'm I'm very guilty of this in my past of writing these like f- weird abstractions that you think will save you a lot of time, but when you look at them in a couple of months, you realize this was totally the wrong abstraction to have picked, and it's actually slowing the team down. I think that is often because again, like you're trying to feel your way around and explore and learn and write better code in your mind. But I find myself these days like trying to write the simplest possible code and delaying the point of abstraction as much as possible and writing a lot of comments about, all right, this could be better, but I'm not going to make it, actually make it more abstract right now because this is just a one-off case and we don't actually know for sure if it's going to happen again. So that's, I think, the part of you know recognizing the ambiguity of things. And there are a lot of things that have subtly changed about my behavior. Like I used to be all about talking about like best practices and, you know, talking about like, oh, this is an anti-pattern or, you know, this is like this so-and-so said we shouldn't do it this way. Or you like try to read the tea leaves of someone's tweets and say, oh mm-hmm. yeah, Dan Abramov says don't do this. So yeah. this is now law and we cannot, <laughs> we cannot uh, break this law. But I think the painful but necessary part of growth, I think, is is realizing that nothing is really an absolute only the SIF de- deals in, in absolutes. Um, and being comfortable with that. Like, again, I was saying, like there there's often maybe no best answer, but picking the right tool for the job, the right solution, takes a lot of patience and communication together with your team. For sure. Yeah, Dan Abramoff's example is actually really funny because he, <laughs> he's the creator of Redux, right? And mm-hmm. he has this tweet where somebody's describing like how somebody put Redux into their application because Dan said to do it. And he replies to the tweet and says like, this is the reason I'm going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, Dan, Dan is, a, is a really smart person and, and, and someone I, I really enjoy working with. And I think it's all part of our growth of, uh, you know, realizing that the things that maybe we all believed were best practices a year ago are probably now like anti-patterns. Which is why I just shy away from saying like this is the best practice and we must do it this way and taking a more case by case basis to things. And again, this this all ties back to being comfortable with ambiguity, right? Because if you don't have these laws, so to speak, then you're introducing a lot of ambiguity in your code because now maybe people have a lot of uncertainty of like, oh, do I use this in this situation or that? And instead of you saying like, oh, you should always use this thing, you're now saying like let's evaluate it on a case by case basis. 
and that's okay. Like it, maybe it's it's gonna slow us down a little bit, but in the in the long run, it actually makes us faster and more resilient to change. Especially if like you know product requirements change, and suddenly all the abstractions that you dreamed up are now totally irrelevant. It's a it's a definitely a very interesting industry to be in. I think like software, you know, is is changing all the time. The the way we build software also has to reflect that. And instead of trying to build these very rigid architectures and in constructs, which maybe in certain scenarios are warranted, like if you're writing code that will never be updated for the next thirty years, and it probably makes sense to get it right from day one. But if if it's something that's constantly being improved and evolved, then you, maybe you don't you don't jump into pouring the concrete where the concrete doesn't belong just yet. Yeah, I think that's a, a good note to end it on. Where can people follow you? Uh, the best place to follow me will be on Twitter. My handle is sugarpirate with an underscore at the end. You can also follow me, I guess, on LinkedIn or add me on Facebook. But Twitter is probably your best bet if you're you're trying to get a hold of me. Lauren, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yes, and thank you, Jeremy. It was really fun talking to you. And see you, everyone. That's it for my chat with Lauren. You can get show notes and a transcript for this episode at softwaresessions.com. And if you enjoyed the show, let someone else know about it. The music in this episode is by Crystal Cola. See you next time. <laughs>